Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurringai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tengata Whenua of Tara, where I'm recording today. Welcome to another week. It has been another week. Time marches on inexorably. <laughs> Always marching on, regardless of our opinions. Exactly. <laughs> Gosh. Someone was saying that their holidays were too long and their kids were like ready to go back to school. And I was just looking at this person like, if it were still school holidays, I think I would be quite happy. Because mm-hmm. I think February has just about done me in. It was a rough month. Like February was rough all around. But hey, yeah. we made it. So go us. That's right. We survive. What sparked joy for you this week? So it was IEP week, which was one of the reasons why it has just felt so stressful because of getting all of mm-hmm. the documentation together. I love IEP time because it means I get a chance to talk about my kid for an hour with their teachers, but also mm-hmm. IEP time is hard because I don't really know what goalposts the educators want to set. So I feel like I'm going in a little bit blind, Right. but I got lots of compliments about my son, which was great. Like... He's so joyful. He's so lovely. He's so kind. He's so sweet. And I'm like, yes, he is my child. I have done this. I have made this amazing creation. But it is nice when you just like really vibe with the teacher. And it was just really nice to connect with my son's teachers. Nice. It was a really joyful chat. And I was extremely tired because I stayed up late reading books the night before. So I had no filter. <laughs> How about you? What sparked joy for you this week? So mine's a bit weird because like I've just been a bit all over the place and yeah, just emotionally all over the place. And then I don't know why, but I was reading T.S. Eliot poems, I think on Mm. Tuesday night or Wednesday night, whatever it was. And I just started crying when I was reading one of them. It was just like really Mm. moved me. And I was like, you are so depressed that you're sitting here crying at poetry like a 16 year old emo. And now you're going to go for your evening walk in the cemetery. Like what is happening? You're living (laughs) your goth dreams. I love your goth dreams. (laughs) But then I was just like, isn't it amazing that poetry can inspire this feeling in me? Like, you know, my ex didn't, he used to say he doesn't get poetry, didn't get poetry, didn't get art, like didn't understand it. And I used to be like, what's to get? Either it moves you or it doesn't. But thinking about it, I was just like, it's actually such a gift that I can be moved like this by art, like that I can feel it so much that I was just like weeping. Yeah. So that was just like sad, but also kind of joyful that I could see so much in so little. I think it's that you have these bells in your life or your soul or your heart or whatever. And when something rings that bell in you, I think it's so beautiful to have that ability to have your bells rung in that way. Mm. And I feel very sad for the people who don't have as many bells to be rung. Yeah, it's just like a, a real moment of being like, this is what it means to be alive, right? And I think that's why, because the poem I was reading was kind of like all about when you look back on your life and the things that mattered and didn't matter and that you can find joy in these moments. Like that's what it is yeah. to be human. I feel that way when I think about the Lesko, the cave paintings of Lesko. Oh, yeah. Like how there were all of these people doing the same thing I do, because lately I've been watercoloring in the evenings. There are all these people hundreds of thousands of years ago painting on the walls, making art, making a story, telling a story in the way that they knew how. Humans are humans, and it is amazing and wonderful. Isn't it? Like we've just been doing the same thing, you know, trying to make our mark howling into the night, trying to be heard. <laughs> That's beautiful. Drawing pictures in the stars. Wow. This week, we're reading chapters 45 to 53 through the theme of instinct. Do you have a story for us about that? I do. I think instinct is a super fascinating concept. So I went and looked up the etymology because I'm a huge nerd. 
it comes from the same root word that gives us like instigate, impulse, inspiration, as well as like incite or impel. So the in is into, in, on, or upon, and the stinct part is from stinguer, which is like to prick or to goad, which is then further away from that from steig, which is to prick, stick, or pierce. So it's literally like piercing into. Mm. And this really tracks with me because in my experience, instinct is like protective or informative or both, but it's a feeling that gets stuck and it won't go away. Like it needles me until I acknowledge it. So I have been trying to articulate the idea of instinct as I experience it. And I have a lot of stories about like, oh, I had this feeling it wouldn't work out. And then I thought, can I corroborate that? Is this just confirmation bias? And I could, like, I do have some journal entries, but I thought I'm not going to go back and be like, oh, I totally called this and this is what happened. (laughs) So I think I wanted to talk about the way I experience instinct and how it like works in my life. For me, it's a warning. I don't think I worry about trusting my instincts when things look like they're going well. I'm willing to take a risk that everything's going to be fine. If I feel like it's going to be good, it probably will be good, but it doesn't feel like an instinct. It's just like I'm normally optimistic, so that is just how I am, right? But if Mm -hmm. my instinct appears, it feels like it's a cautionary poke, like a hand, a metaphysical hand on my metaphysical arm, so to speak, saying, just be careful. Pause for a second. Look at this. And it's in the vibe that you get sometimes. Like you can get a vibe from another person. You can get a gut feeling about a situation Mm -hmm. or like a little thought and it's all of this seemingly baseless evidence that becomes like kind of inevitably true it's every experience i've ever had consolidated into the ability to read this pattern that's made up of small nearly imperceptible behaviors and comments and attitudes all of these things i've learned to look out for all of these things that i clock without even realizing it that's what makes up what i would think of as my instinct and as i've gotten older my instinct has gotten better like i'm always optimistic and hopeful but i can usually tell when things aren't going to go well i no longer push and fight to make things happen if my instinct kind of warns me that they won't because i've realized that there's like no point in spending extra energy just to wind up angry that what I knew wouldn't happen <laughs> didn't happen or what I knew would happen did. But it's also really frustrating to know something will happen a certain way and not be heard. Like sometimes I feel like Cassandra, I just need people to listen because I know it's going to happen and I can't get people to hear me. Mm-hmm. So the way that I approach it now is not to yell into the void or repeat myself endlessly. I've just started writing it down because I actually do want to know if my instincts bear out. Like I do want to be able to track. Was I right about that feeling? When I get that little nudge, that little pause, I record it. I leave a note for future Jen so I can go, yes, this was real. And it's kind of a relief to have those notes because sometimes I can trick myself into doubting myself. Oh, what do Mm. I really know? Who am I to predict this? But it turns out I actually have fairly reliable instincts. So um, I'm going to work a little bit more on trusting myself with them. Oh, I love that. Thanks. It's a hard subject to write about. I do think there's an innate thing, right? Like we've spoken about this at work sometimes, like not in my current role, but in a previous role where, you know, you heard about a man doing something a bit untoward and all the women would be like, oh, well, I always had a feeling. Like I feel like women often have a vibe, especially when it comes to men, where you're like, well, you don't want to be alone in the office with him at night. You know, like there's that little warning that goes off in your head. And like, we all seem to have it. Like we all were like, yeah, yeah. We always, we always suspected, you know, like, hmm. A little warning bell. Yeah, I've got a few people. I've got a few names on that list that I have had for a while where I'm just like, nope, that person's not someone I want to be alone with. Mm. Even if they would never do anything, I still don't feel like something about them mirrors behavior from other creepy people that I've encountered who would have hurt me, you know? And that's, it's self-protection, right? Like it's a preserving instinct. It's something you have to protect you, to keep you safe. Yeah, because I guess like it's like kind of really base human thing. Like we have instincts to, to protect, to hunt, to do these things. So like really goes back to our core physiology is like animals Mm. right yeah one of the planet earth episodes we watch a lot because in my family we watch planet earth every day one of them has a fairy turn i think and she's trying to incubate an egg that has been eaten so he says 
the instinct to incubate her egg is so strong. Like he's, he's talking about the instinct that she has to do something even though it's broken. And for a long time that always struck me as this poor bird who is like walking around in the broken yolk of her egg. Like it's trying to do the thing that she was doing but it's all broken and she can't figure out a way to move forward from it. Like she doesn't really know what's wrong yet. That's like a, a real good metaphor I think for trauma, right? Like this idea that you, something yeah. is broken and you don't know what it is so you just keep doing what you think you should be doing. You're acting on this instinct mm-hmm. to just like keep surviving and keep existing but you're exactly. not addressing the fundamental broken issue. Yeah, and I had I really had a thought about that this week. I, I almost told my story about the way that I retreat into cool girl, like nothing touches mm. her. Everything's great. Everything's good. How are you? Tell me about you. Yeah, I'm going to be funny and sarcastic. Yeah, I'm going to be on, like yeah girl yeah untouchable yeah yeah totally an instinct and that's a self-preservation one oh yeah and i think we see a lot of that kind of self-preservation instinct in the section that we read yeah we do so i shall do the chapter summaries for us yay um well penny and baz are the dream team snark duo we never knew we needed it's amazing baz and simon decide to try more of the magic shearing that worked on the dragon and end up in a magical space agatha uninvites simon to family christmas and baz steps into offer but it just causes a fight Simon learns who Nicodemus is and immediately runs to find Baz and then we get the great line Baz you're wearing jeans I love that his first instinct is to be like your clothes are different (laughs) (laughs) but bless him because he's still in his school uniform and it's Christmas of course he is it's what he likes to wear I know that there's no official neurodivergent diagnosis of Simon but the more I see the more I'm like this kid is not neurotypical I'm building my case but the uniform is a big one right like he has specific clothes that he wears for specific places he doesn't have anything else though like he doesn't have options well but he does because he was talking about how um Agatha's parents always buy him clothes for Christmas Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And he does have other things he could wear. He just doesn't because he's at Watford. He wears his Watford uniform at Watford. This is like me and having to put my jeans on so I feel like I'm doing work. Like if I'm trying to do editing in my pajamas, no editing will happen because I'll be like, oh, I want to read a book or play or do something else. (laughs) If I want to do work, I have to be in work clothes, so... Where else did you see instinct? Well, I think I want to talk about Simon's magic just firstly. I think his magic is just completely instinctual Mm -hmm. because he doesn't need spells, right? He just thinks and makes things happen. Like it's just intent. He just needs to have intent and then it happens. So his magic is like instinctual. But the interesting thing is this applies even when Baz is wielding his power. Like Baz Mm -hmm. casts that spell that, you know, sends them into magical space, but it's not a real spell. He's just saying things and it's just Mm -hmm. happening, right? So it's Simon's magic that is different it's the way you wield it that is instinctual and I think that's just beautiful and also he had the instinct to pull back right like he saw that Baz was getting a little too drunk on it and Mm -hmm. was able to pull back and I thought that was like really good job there because he he doesn't really know what to do all of the time but you're right he's a very instinctual creature yeah one of his main drivers is a protective instinct I think he wants to help he wants to protect the people that he cares about which includes Baz because he doesn't tell anyone about the visiting right because it's Baz's business and I love that line when he's talking to Penny about like referring to it as the Watford tragedy so on page 275 he says that makes it sound like it happened to people far away who don't matter to us so he acknowledges that Baz matters right like I just love that and he just has this instinct to act like he has to act his hand is on the hilt of the sword he's running off to Hampshire at the drop of a hat like he is just (laughs) always acting poor impulse control he has a kind instinct too because like when he feeds the little baby goat like the goat comes over and he's like here Mm. have my biscuit like it's just a really nice touch I love that he actually follows his instincts through to action because it's very hard out there for people whose impulsivity gets in the way of like living a normal life without Hmm. craziness but I think he's served well by his instinct he's 
had to survive. So a lot of that is just being able to spot the opportunity and take the opportunity when it happens. Mm. And he's trying to learn how not to always go for the lethal option, right? He didn't want to slay a dragon. He wanted to listen to Baz. He wanted to figure out a better way, but he just didn't know a better way. So mm. I thought even though that was last section, it was like real battle of instincts. And like he was able to then articulate afterward, yeah, that dragon didn't want to be there. It, it wanted to go home. His instinct is always to fight. And he's got great instincts. Like in the heat of the moment, I think I would back Simon any day of the week. I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah just do what you think you have to do and we'll be fine, right? Absolutely. But he's always looking for a way to be more in control. I think fundamentally he never feels in control. Not of his magic, not of his emotions. Mm. He just is not in control of his life. So he looks for these outs, right? Like he talks to Baz about, yes, he would share his magic with them again if it was an option other than going off. Like he doesn't like yeah. that he has these moments where he just kind of blows up. And then, you know, he slams his shoulder into the wall when he feels too much emotion because it gives him control it gives him a way to like put a focus on things mm -hmm. that's another point in my case actually I just think it's destructive I know you think it's like a comfort thing but I genuinely just think it's destructive it's self-harm well uh, yeah I mean you might say that but like I see my son doing this all of the time for a long time they had this game where he would hop across the furniture and the living like we just said basically I had to get sturdier furniture because we couldn't stop him from doing it and I wasn't interested in like punishing him for it <laughs> but he would do this thing where he would jump really hard off of things and crash onto the floor. And like, I can understand that sensation going all the way up through his legs was settling him somehow. And I see it now that if you have a wrestle with him and he's really fidgety, he's calm afterward. In speech, if he's doing this, like if he's squirrely and yawning and unable to sit still, I have him do star jumps and then he's fine. Like he can sit for another mm -hmm. 15 minutes and do the work. So there's definitely something about like, I can't regulate. I need this external input and proprioception is one of those things that people often don't realize they need which is why people fidget or like drum their feet on the floor or like tap things that's all proprioceptive that's all kind of giving you that stimuli that input i just see yeah. with simon as being very it is very destructive you're right but i don't know that it's intentionally destructive as much as it is like i just need to feel a big jar and then i feel more centered in myself I guess the reason I see it as destructive is because he only does it when he feels bad. Like he only mm. does it when he feels really badly. Like when he's frustrated with Baz because he can't get the words out, he is like pulling on his hair. And this incident, like Penny has said something to him that's really hurt him and he can't vocalize that, right? Yeah. So he walks into the wall. It just, yeah, it just reminds me of when like I, you know, trigger warning for self-harm. I was never like massively into self-harm, but I would used to like scratch at myself when I was mm -hmm. feeling too much. Like I would just like dig my nails into my thighs and just rake them up my thighs just to like kind of bring yourself down. Yeah. And that's kind of what I see in Simon. Like he's so overcome with emotion that he just like does these things that are not great. <laughs> he needs a compression singlet. He does. Like he's just a weighted blanket. Yes. I, I do see that Simon's instinct is very strong to protect mm. others and himself. And I think mm -hmm. that that really shows up when Baz says he never uses he never uses spells on himself or other people if he can help it. Which reminded me like earlier in the book, Simon talked about the fact that he hates when people cast spells on him, right? Because mm. it makes him feel like a child, which comes back to this thing about control. Like if someone's yeah. casting a spell on him, he's not in control. But he's never really in control. Yeah, which brings me to the mage. Oh, yeah. So he's not in this section, but I think there's kind of like this underlying understanding between everyone that the mage's first instinct would not be to protect Simon. It would be yeah. to like just win the war at whatever case. So he's like, yeah, you know, Baz says, imagine what the mage will do when he realizes he has a nuclear power generator in his backyard. Yes. You know, and Simon is like, Simon knows that he's right. Like he looks at mm -hmm. the wall and he's like, oh, yeah. 
you know, I don't want my power completely out of my hands. Like he doesn't want to tell the mage. And then Penny has that moment where she's like, do you think the mage would hurt my mother at all? And on page 274 and Simon says, no, of course he wouldn't. But I don't think he believes that. I don't think either of them believe that. Yeah, I agree. I think they both know that the mage is capable of much more. But I think Simon believes enough that the mage won't hurt him that he could actually Mm. stand in the way and protect Penny's mom. Like, he knows Penny's mom doesn't like him and he still would do that for Penny, which is just so beautiful. Even though he knows that he's expected to report back to the mage, he still would love to spend Christmas with Penny. He still wants to spend it with someone. Forget Agatha right here. I'm so angry. Sorry. Like, that was... It's just not okay. It's not okay to do that. Like, why... Why? I do think it's kind of wild that Simon had just assumed that he would keep going to Christmas. Like, even before he had this conversation with Agatha, he's like, yeah, yeah, it'll be weird going to Christmas and having Christmas dinner. I'm like, I would never have assumed that that was still a thing. Well, he doesn't know know anything different, right? So even before he and Agatha were together, he's always gone to Christmas at the Well Mm. Beloved's, right? So Mm. I can see how he would be like, oh, well, we were friends. We weren't really friends, but her dad offered me a place. And then now we're not dating anymore, but we should go back to being friends. And we should still do Christmas. And she's just like, I just want you to stay away from me, but thanks. Like, you have to give him more warning. I love that line. I thought that was his instinct to kind of be kind and protective as well. You know, when he says on page 65, you know, acting like enemies when all we've ever been is friends. Like, he just wants to be, he just wants things to be Uh good. He just wants to, you know, be there for her and like for things to be some semblance of normal. I also love that it kind of told on himself, right? All we've ever been is friends. Yeah. But then I also thought, you know, he says that he has that whole monologue where he's like, I don't say what I'm thinking. And he's like thinking, oh, I'll just stay in the TV. Like so many of Simon's problems could actually be solved if he could just articulate what he's actually internally saying to himself, right? But he doesn't. He just kind of keeps it all bottled up. (sighs) It makes me sad that he doesn't get to spend that time. Like, I feel like, I feel like Agatha's dad probably really likes him. Of all the adults that know Simon, he's the adult that likes him the best. Hmm. Except for Eb. But all of the parent figures, because Eb's not really a parent figure, all of the parent figures, it's Agatha's dad who takes the most interest in him and who looks out for him and is willing to talk to him about stuff and treats him like a person and not a weapon of war and not like a spy. I like. I just want to shake every adult there and be like, stop treating this damaged child like he's something that he's like, just treat him like a person, treat him like a kid. The thing that really just hurt me, and that's that mm. bit, was when Simon says, well, I'll have to break into the kitchen to feed myself during Christmas because there's mm. no one around. And like, why is this even allowed? Like, does no one care that he's just going to be here on his own? Like, no one checks on him. No one, like, what? I don't like it. Ugh. I mean, Baz does try to invite him to Christmas, which was sweet. But also Baz's instinct is just to be as difficult as possible in uh, all situations at yeah. all time. Can we talk about how difficult he is? <laughs> Yeah, but it's 100% a protection mechanism, right? Like, he needs to protect his own heart, I guess. But, oh my gosh, he is so bad. Well, his instinct is to protect himself, right? So the expectations he sets are that if he's as rude as possible, then the outcome that he's expecting will definitely happen. So even if he's nice, he doesn't think that... And Like, I just don't think he cares that much about being nice, to be honest. Like, he's kind, but he's not nice. So I think that all of that snappiness and snarkiness is really just to be like, see, I told you he doesn't like me. I told you we can't be friends. And then he acts like so wounded at the end where he's like, I thought maybe we could get somewhere with it. And I'm like, well, maybe if you had just said, hey, I'm gay. I don't actually ever want to date Agatha. Like, I think she's great and funny, but I kind of love just teasing you. Like, he just needed to say that. And so I would be like, oh, you're what? Oh, okay. Yeah. And I mean, he tried it, says it, like, he he has that line where he's like, I was never an option. I was never going to be an option. Like, he's trying to say it. 
I also just love on page 257 when they have that exchange where Simon's like, can you come here? And Basil's like, no. He's like, well, I'll come over there then. And he's like, no. He's like, I cross my arm, I cross my legs and my arms. You may not. Like, I just love that. He's just like, gives absolutely nothing, right? Like, and even at the end, when Simon turns up at his house, he's still so standoffish until eventually he's like, oh, Thanks for dropping by. Like, this isn't all of your dreams come true. <laughs> you roll down a very tall hill. I just, I love him. Also, page 277, he says, mm. you know, when they're having the conversation about Agatha, he says, it was just flirting. It's not like I tried to feed her to a chimera, which is indirectly admitting that that act is more than flirting. Like, by me trying to feed you to the chimera, I was actually declaring my love for you, but you just didn't pick up on it. <laughs> He's kind so of the good. worst at this. He's so bad at it. Um... Just tailing off of that, the perfectly normal roommate behavior, my very favorite one of all of this is that I won't stop when he's talking about flirting with Agatha. He says, like, he's the one who should be angry. Is that better? I'll marry her, and we'll have the best-looking kids in the history of magic, and we'll name them all Simon just to get under your skin. And then he actually spends the next chapter seething about it and considers what it would be like to be married to her in exactly the same way that she was thinking about married to, being married to him. Aesthetically, we'll look amazing. What's yeah. wrong with you people? It did annoy me how Simon and Baz talk about Agatha like she doesn't have her own thoughts or feelings. He's like, you know, I'll give her the keys to whatever she wanted. It's hmm. like, mate, she has her own wants and needs. Like, she's not just yeah. there for the two of you to, like, swap around being like, oh, she'll marry you. No, she'll marry me. Well, she likes you better than me. Why wouldn't she? <laughs> Guys, please. They're arguing around something else, but the unfortunate side effect is Agatha, right? Yeah. Um, but it did make me laugh. It's a great, great section. <laughs> I also love how Penny is clocked in. She goes, wow, what are you going to do with yourself now that you don't have Baz? And his instinctive reaction is to say, I still have Baz. Yes, you still have Baz. Yes, he will still annoy you and torment you, just not in the way that you're thinking. I think Baz also has this instinct to keep secrets, like, because that's Mm. how he was raised. So he will never give anything away for free. Like he even says on page 252, you know, nobody tells anyone anything in my family. You just know, you learn to know. And Simon and Penny are both like, what do you mean no one talks? Because obviously in Penny's house, like... People Nobody probably talk too talking. much. Yeah. I loved the, just as a little tangent, I love the way that people view her dad, but I think he's really lovely. Mm. He's such a romantic that, you know, like he loves marriage and family rights and they're bonded or something in five dimensions. In five dimensions. Like, and like, Baz says, that's lovely. And Simon's like, oh, I'm terrified he means it. But like, I also think it's really lovely. It's really cute. I love it too. I, I also love that Baz describes him as made of elbow patches. <laughs> walking footnotes footnotes come to life or something like that he's never followed him to the end of a sentence which i just think is kind of lovely like i might actually be penelope's dad i think i am penelope's dad you are not made of elbow patches you are made of amazement and sprinkles and delight thank you but i do have a lot of footnotes i am a footnote factory (laughs) it's a good sign it's how you find things out um this is like a really tiny instinct, but it just cracked me up. I just laugh so much at Simon's instinct to eat everything in sight. Like there's that moment where Penny gives him a book, like she takes a book from him and she hands him her sandwich and he just like eats the sandwich. Mm-hmm. Like, no, what are you doing? She just wanted you to hold it. And you're like, oh, well, food is in my hand. I better eat it. Mm-hmm. And like he wants to drink from the milk bottle and Baz is like, how dare you? I loved that. I thought that was such a great signifier of expectation. Like the expectation is that you mind your manners, please. But I just thought it was really cute that Simon was like, don't get kicked out of the room for this. And Baz is like, I'm saving you from yourself, really. I think Penny also has an instinct just to problem solve, right? Like she has to know things. Mm. She can't leave anything alone. She has to unpick and unpick and unpick. Absolutely. She works really hard at it, but I think her instincts are really good, right? So 
she was able to clue into the fact that Simon had done something with Baz. Like, she figured out the magic sharing before anyone else did. And she's not sure if anyone else clocked it, but she's like, I couldn't tell for certain. And I was right there. Like, I was the closest. But I did see this and I did see that. So her immediate, like, extrapolation, information gathering and processing is really quick. The way that Baz's is. Hmm. But her instinct is to know and discover. And she's very relentless in that. She doesn't really have a, this is not good for you to follow through on this kind of, she doesn't have a limit there. Hmm. So she's like, here, get me, zap me, I want the juice. Like, that's not, maybe, I think Simon's right on this to be, his instinct of protectiveness actually saves Penny quite a bit. Because Penny's like, yes, I will stick that fork in the light socket. I definitely want to know how electricity works. <laughs> ah! Yeah, definitely. Um, I love that as like an identity marker, actually, because yeah. you see Baz's identity as a pitch, like when Simon tells him to be careful and he's like, I trust my family and these things. Yeah. But what I really loved was page 247 when he talks about Penelope and he says half her opinions would get her thrown in a dungeon if her name were pitch instead of buns. I love the kind of similarities between Penny and Baz like they yeah. are really passionate about the same things they're both really yeah. smart they've got all these things like obviously the Bunces have like the same kind of attitude towards knowledge and history that the pitchers mm -hmm. do like we know that the pitchers are more into the darker side of things but you know like we know that Penny is a bit of a rogue the two of them steal library books they're quite delinquents you know like and I just love that I love that they've got this like little identity I like it too I like that Simon's best friend and his roommate are basically just two halves of the same coin yeah and i love that they both like him for not being that way and they like each other for being that way it's got it's a really good balance like penny is kind but she's also brutal like she will tell simon the truth at all times and i think that he expects her to he expects her to be honest he says why doesn't your mother like me and she's like oh you know she does but you know she's worried you're gonna report back to the mage and he, he just says she doesn't like me um let's see i have to i have to find it it's on page 273. Your mother does not like me, Penny. She just thinks you attract trouble. And you do, Simon. Possibly literally. Yeah, but I can't help it. Like, she's always mm. going to tell him the truth. And he expects that from her. And sometimes it is hurtful. She isn't doing it to be hurtful, but sometimes it is hurtful. I kind of love that he can also call her on things. Like, when she's being a little bit bigoted or whatever. You know, Poor Simon Trixie. will call it out. Yeah, like, Simon will say it. And she kind of just accepts it. Like, I love that kind of friendship where you can tell... You can say things like that to your friends and they're not going to like get upset and hold it against you because that is actually a rare thing. Like it's a rare thing yeah. to find a friendship where you can have these conversations, where you can be honest mm. with someone, where you don't have to add 20 caveats to what you're saying. And the two of them can yeah. just be completely honest with each other, which is just a beautiful thing. Yeah. And they take each other's advice and stuff on board. Hmm. Like, he often talks about how he quotes, Simon often talks about how Penny is in his brain all the time. He's having arguments with himself and Penny is responding as if she's there. Like, they know each other so well that they can have those mm. conversations. Like, I love that he's got the Greek chorus of himself and Penny and now Baz. Yeah. There to antagonize him. Yeah, to call him names. <laughs> Speaking of Baz, I thought his mum had some good instincts on her when she gave Eb a place to stay, right? Like, give her I a agree. sense of belonging. And I love that line that she says on page 285, you know, you were born with it, but it doesn't have to be your destiny. Such a kindness. And that directly relates to Simon, right? I do also think it's kind of like further proof for me that she wouldn't have offed Baz the way that Baz and Fiona no. think she would have. Eb does say, I wonder if Mistress Pish would have been so forgiving if it was one of her own. But I do think she would have. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think so too. Look, it's, it's different. The perspective shifts, I think. And so I wonder if... Baz's mom would have been like, yes, those vampires are bad, but my son is has been raised to be my son first, and he will become a vampire.
vampire but like what is that like what does that really mean i don't think she would have killed him i think she would have just had to come to terms with it i think if we think of instinct as like a natural propensity to be good at something then baz's mm-hmm. violin playing is like an instinctual yeah. thing right like and he shares it with his grandfather which i think is quite cute i think the saddest thing that i read this time was baz regretting the arguments that they're having and he doesn't really know how to communicate with simon yet like he's they're just they're bad at it but on page 280 he says i thought we were making progress like maybe when this was all over he and i would still be standing on either side of the trench but we wouldn't be spitting at each other we wouldn't be spoiling for the fight but i know simon and i will always be enemies but i thought maybe we'd get to a point where we didn't want to be Mm. and i think simon never wanted to be an enemy of baz's like he never wanted that he held his hand out first he was fine with him he didn't know anything about him just thinking back to when they were cast together as roommates and it just breaks my heart that baz wasn't like all right okay i'm just gonna like befriend this kid no because baz's identity is first and foremost as a pitch right like yeah. he has been groomed all along like the mage mm-hmm. is the enemy it's the same way you know like when penny talks about her mom and she says like she knows that you're honest and forthright and that if you hear something you shouldn't you'll go right to the mage with it she calls you the mini mage so simon's identity as the mage's heir really influences how everyone sees him yeah and then you've got baz's identity as a pitch and like those two things are just incompatible like they cannot coexist yeah but i love how in this section more than any section we see how compatible they are for each other like the fact that simon's magic is like smoke and you know fire and baz says i know what to do with this it's on page 259 the discomfort goes away even though the licking flaming feeling gets stronger this i know what to do with this is fire he talks about it being as like closing a circuit Mm-hmm. this is the first time that simon has ever been able to focus his magic and yes he does it through bears but like it's just i just love how they just fit together and it's like this ultimate fundamental connection because there's this whole thing about magic as identity right like magic is life like simon says baz isn't dead he has magic that's life yeah. And then even Penny, you know, when her and Baz are bonding, she's like, that's politics. We're talking about magic. Like, yeah. this transcends. <laughs> I love that. I love that the expectation that they're going to be enemies is, like, subverted in that moment because they're like, we're not talking about politics right now. And Simon's like, what is the difference? All The only <laughs> world I know is the world of mages. What is mm. the difference? And he does kind of know, but he doesn't live it. He hasn't lived it. He hasn't grown up in it. I love them. I do. I love the trio. They're perfect. And I love this section with Ebb. I love where she gets to actually talk about her brother. I love that Simon wants to hear it and wants to listen. And he's there to ask questions, but he's also just there to be with Ebb. And what an instinct she's been suppressing, right? Like this instinct to be known and to like talk about her brother, like her twin. And Mm. she hasn't been allowed to. Like she's just had to like suppress this urge. Well, and she says that great line about, I haven't talked to him no matter what anybody says. Yeah. Because she does that little speech on Christmas, right? She'll go and say to him on Christmas what she's been up to. She'll talk to the air. Yeah, he never says anything, but she just voices it out loud. I love that on page 288, she says, in a way, it's good to talk about it, to get some of it out of my heart, even for a minute which I think is just great life advice in general sometimes it's just good to vocalize the terrible things that you are feeling like the act of talking makes you feel better no Jen feelings are the worst and they should be suppressed at all costs all right (laughs) (laughs) um I also on that note like this is tangential but on page 243 when Penny is asking for Simon to use like to open up and give her the juice Mm -hmm. right she's like I trust you 
And he says, that doesn't mean I won't hurt you. And for me, I was just like, this is life. This is what love is. This is what life is. This is what's letting people into your life. It's knowing that, yeah, I trust you, but you're probably going to hurt me. Like every person we love is probably going to hurt us. Like no one's never not going to do that. And the people we love are going to hurt us the most deeply because we love them and they can get in further. I don't know. It really hit me that one. I was like, oh, it's just life advice. And then he says, okay, but what if I damage you? Because she says pain is temporary. And I love that she's already thought through that and has an answer. And she's right. Most of the time pain is temporary, but he doesn't want to hurt her so bad that she can't come back from it, which is another way of loving someone, knowing that you could hurt them and not hurting them, not giving yourself the opportunity to hurt them. That's really powerful. Hmm. Did you have any other instinct thoughts? I wrote down a bunch. I felt like I underlined most of the section. (laughs) I think Simon's feelings about Baz mean that he has really incorrect instincts about him he's only really able to focus when he and baz are working together when they're when they're working at odds simon's instincts about baz are always completely off right Mm. but in this section i saw a lot of bids i saw simon offering a lot and baz being very cold like he was not ready for it he was not prepared but the, the one on page 271 where he said i can't always tell when baz is mocking me that one really got me because i feel the same way too like i don't always know if i'm Am I the butt of the joke? Like sometimes, especially growing up, especially when I was a teenager, I did not know. And I'd be laughing along and then I'd be like, oh, wait, that was aimed at me. Like, that's not with me. That's at me. And it sucks. It sucks. It feels bad. And I kind of want Baz to just chill for a minute because like maybe Simon can get over it. But also this isn't his speed. It's not his thing. He's not like a bigger couple kind of person. So I don't, I don't know. It's just hard. It was, it was yeah. a per- I took it really personally. I was like, I feel you. I feel you. I get it, kid. I also didn't yeah. know and still don't often know. Yeah, I think like Baz just doesn't realize that Simon isn't picking up what he's putting down, right? Mm. Like because Baz is so closed off, and so he makes these snarky remarks, and he assumes that it doesn't touch Simon because it wouldn't touch Baz, right? Like because he yeah. is so so closed off. Because I am always Baz in this situation. Like I am the one who is making the snarky comments, and I am the one making jokes at other people's expense. Like this is something I did a lot as a teenager that I'm not proud of. Like I've said some really mean things, and it's something I still do. And like I have a friend at work who sometimes I will say things, and I can see that it like Lance. she's not. She yeah, she's taking it literally and I always have to back up and be like, Hey, hey, just so you know, I'm joking. I don't mean that. Like yeah. I always always caveat it. Like when I see her get tense, I'm like, Hey, I'm sorry, like I just say it for the lols, like I yeah. did not mean it. But sometimes I do push it too far because I am very dry. It's kinda like in The Simpsons. There's that episode where Marge tries to join a country club and she's got that Chanel suit that she wears yeah. all the time. And that woman keeps saying mean things to her and then eventually she doesn't join the club and that woman has that line where she's like, I hope she didn't take my attempts to destroy her seriously. (laughs) And I feel like that's Baz, right? Like, he's like, why? I was just like, you shouldn't have taken that seriously. And that's me too. I'm like, what? I'm just being like that. That's not serious. Like, it's a horrible thing, but it comes from a protective element. Like, if you don't let people close, they can't hurt you. Oh, exactly. 100% and I've definitely been on the other side of that too where I'm not the sensitive one but I am the one with the stabbing implement you know I am very good at fighting people's soft parts and it's not a part of myself that I'm particularly proud of so I try really hard not Mm. to do it but I am really good at knowing what makes people tick and like how best to undermine and make them feel their worst I can be very evil. Ask my husband. He's he's had enough fights with me over the however many years yeah. we've been married now that he's like, yeah, yeah, she can be lethal. Because I can. I can be really awful. But boy, I hate the feeling that I am awful and I hate hurting people. So I just want Baz to realize that like it's landing, you know? Yeah, which is things we've learned, right? Like growing up, we've learned to temper these impulses. But 
when you're 18. And I think the conflict here is very age appropriate. Like these don't feel like adults dressed as teenagers. They feel like real life teenagers who need to get it sorted out, but they're not there yet. And they've got no adult support. Oh my gosh. Where, where are the RAs? Where is, who is looking after the children? Nobody is looking after the, I'm very stressed out by this gen. Who's looking after the Mm. children. Fair enough. I feel like they need adults there. Yeah, they've got no one looking out for him. Like, Frank, at least, you know, when we were asking him about that mm-hmm. and, like, you know, when you're at boarding school, the, the older students would sort of look out for the younger ones. And I suppose they are the elder students in the school now. But there's, like, no peer support network. There's nothing going on here where yeah. anyone is looking out for anyone else. Mm. It's very think, hands-off at Watford. I think there's a prefect equivalent, but because they make a throwaway line that the kids were getting into trouble, but they weren't the prefect equivalent unit, so they didn't have to worry about it. They didn't have to think about mm. it. But... It's just not enough. It makes me very stressed out to think about these kids having no adult supervision. And not even adult supervision, but, like, grown-ups that they can trust and talk to. Yeah, Simon's got no one. Like, I feel at least Penny's got a, you know, she can talk to her parents, right? Like, whether they actually listen to her or give her useful advice is up for discussion. But they're there. Like, her dad is there, her mum is there. She feels comfortable enough to go to them. But Baz doesn't. Fiona is a loose cannon, and his dad just is too stoic. So he's got no one really to talk to about his things. And Simon obviously has no one. But I think that's fine for Baz in a way. Like, he's way more okay with that because that's part of, like, the family culture that you have the stiff upper lip, right? Mm. And Simon's just in survival mode, so he doesn't actually know how to connect. Like, he doesn't know what to do outside of the purpose that he's given himself. And he's had this formative idea of who he is and all of this expectation around it. So his instincts are geared toward fight, protect, fight, protect. But relating to people, unless it's Penny, he's completely lost. Mm. So sad. Tangentially, on page 250, Baz talks about the dragon, right? And he says, you don't slay a dragon unless you're trying to open a portal to hell. What does it mean that Simon has already slayed a dragon? Maybe this explains the wings. Mm. Also, I love that Baz knows what happens when you slay a dragon. And I think you have to do it intentionally. So I think it's like, you know how Shep in the second book admits to like summoning this Mm -hmm. demon. And isn't it in the third book where we get the, like, whys and hows of it? Like, how it happened yeah. what he did to... Okay. So I think slaying the dragon is, like, part of the right, but not the whole yeah. of the right. You have to do it in the right way and, like, in the right setting and draw the right runes on the ground and do all these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would make sense. But I wonder, like, for me, it kind of reminded me of Harry Potter and how if you slay a unicorn, you know, you are cursed, like, instantly yeah. cursed. And I yes. wondered if there wasn't something around, like, if you slay a dragon, then you've got a bit of a curse. Because Simon, arguably, is quite cursed. Like, yeah. he's got terrible luck, right? So. He doesn't ever want to kill anything. He said it. Like, he's said it so many times. He doesn't want to kill anything. He doesn't want to be the bomb that goes off. He wants control. He's got no control. He just wants it to work. He just wants everyone to be safe. This kid wants stability so bad. The other thing I just wanted to draw mm. attention to, you know, when Simon and Baz are sharing magic and yeah. Simon says to him, can you do it the other way? Like, can you take my magic? And Baz does this whole thing, page 261, you know, he talks about, I try to be a vacuum or a black hole. Nothing happens. I try to pull at snow then to suck it in with my own magic. What he's doing is describing the humdrum here. It's like a vacuum. Mm-hmm. He's sucking. He's doing all these things. That's what the humdrum does, right? But yeah. Simon, as the humdrum, takes power. So Simon is the only one who can give and take magic, which I kind of just love as a thing. I never really thought about it that way. I just have kind of a fog of what Simon really is in my brain. 
I don't really think too closely about it. I don't know if he really is the humdrum or if the humdrum is just some kind of weird mirror or if it's like one can't exist without the other or I don't know. I think it's just the, the negative space. Like, you know, mm. to every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction, right? Like yeah. Newtonian law. So Simon, by being born, pulled all this magic out of the world, which created this hole yeah. and that manifests as the humdrum. So like Simon is the vessel for the magic. And the consequence of that is the humdrum. But they're both related. Like, they're both the yeah. same thing. Like, the magic manifests as Simon because Simon is the one that's causing it. Yeah, I, I often think that whatever magic he had, it's so much bigger and worse. It's sort of like like having a thin current of electricity, like having a little wire, but he's just overloaded with something else. Mm. So, like, the whole house shuts down or, like, all of the power goes into this one wire and it really shouldn't. Like, like power surges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a power surge and he's causing, like, he has too many circuits at once and so he's causing this inability for magic to be consistent in places because he draws so much at a time. He causes basically a blackout or a brownout, right? But whatever yeah. his natural... Because I feel like there's a difference between what he's able to do and what he's been made to be able to do yeah but i don't know what the difference would be and i don't know how to articulate it like i'm kind of halfway looking out for it but i don't really know how to delineate that like what would he have been if he had just been a magical child born to lucy and davy what, mm. what would his magic have looked like i don't think it would be the way it is but i also don't think it would be nothing do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, he definitely has an innate magical ability, right? Like, it's just been amplified. He's been turned into, like, a mirror or something to, like... Yeah. Like, I always think of him as a generator. Like, he's just overloaded, right? No, a capacitor. He pulls it all yeah. in and bursts out. And I always thought that, you know, getting ahead of ourselves, but I always thought that he would eventually get his magic back. Like, he would just top up. Like, he's just empty right now, mm. but he would be able to be filled. He's just, like, such a big storage yeah. unit that it would take a while for him to get filled up again. But every time someone casts on him, he absorbs a little bit of that. But anyway. I feel like there has to still be magic in him if he can pick up that sword. But anyway. Oh, I love that Eb at the end says, if you get lonely, you can call me. Send up a flare, yeah. I'll feel it. Eb deserves the world. I love that grubby kid so much. She's so great. I want her to be happy. I don't care if she's smelly. I don't care if she lives with goats. I love that she loves Simon and that he loves her. It's a real flaw of everyone else, like even Penny, right? Like everyone just judges her as nothing, but she's this incredibly powerful mage and like yeah. she has knowledge that other people don't, as we find out in the third book. Like yeah. you guys should have listened to her, <laughs> paid more attention. I think Simon was so love starved that he was just going anywhere that there was an, an availability. And also their power is similar, right? They're both big magicians. Yeah. They have a lot of power. And Eb recognizes that she doesn't know what to do with herself. So the fact that she's given a place to be and something to do and no one to yell at her for wasting magic she's like yeah cool i'll stay here forever goats are great love goats yeah. and when simon talks about like you know she would put his uh, her arms around him and he'll lean into it and he always leans into it because he's so touch starved it just breaks my heart yeah my littlest is going through a real clingy phase at the moment and like it's all the time and i'm getting to the <laughs> point where i'm overtouched, so i've had to say okay we're gonna do 10 second cuddles now so we hold on to each other really tightly and we count slowly to 10 and then he has to go play because otherwise he would just be <laughs> On me all of the time with his head in my shirt on my stomach, not ever letting me do anything else. He's also had a rough February, I think. He's having to learn a lot at school, so it's hard. Yeah. But then again, like I'm I should not be one to talk. I kept my my daughter was supposed to go to sleep early last night and I was like, No, you can stay up and read and like we hung out together until eleven thirty and I'm like, This is real great parenting, letting your ten year old stay up just because you're a little bit 
one in company. It's a Friday. It's fine. That's true. Um, I don't think I have any other tangential marginalia, really. The only other thing I had, and this is probably just me being silly, but you know when Simon talks to Baz about the handkerchief, he tells her that Agatha carried his handkerchief around and he says he keeps it in the drawer with his wand. And I'm like, mm-hmm. with your wand? Like, this is an important thing. The wand is the most important thing that you're supposedly having. And this is where you keep Baz's handkerchief <laughs> as well. Like, guys perfectly normal roommate behavior and then he won't let Baz keep it either he pulls it back because he's like I don't want him to have it I'm like yeah because you want it I don't want him to have anything right now yeah he's real mad oh I think it's really lovely how he is mad that Baz was like stringing Agatha along like he's mad on Agatha's behalf like it's Hmm. worse that you don't like her it's worse that you were treating her like that like that's terrible of you to do and I kind of love that he recognizes that even though he doesn't really recognize he's not in love with her this is what I'm doing with <laughs> there you go, got a big cuddle. Yep, and a whinge. All the whinging. Anyway, yeah, so I love that. That That's the last thing I think I had that was tangential was that Simon was actually quite upset that anybody was treating Agatha badly because he does care about her. Hmm. Did you have an in-depth marginalia? This is on page 271. I love this whole paragraph, so I'm going to talk about it. Penny keeps reminding me that Baz is still my enemy, that when the truce ends, he could use everything he's learned against me. But I'm not sure I'm the one who needs reminding. Half the time we're together, I'm just sitting in my bed reading while Penelope and Baz are comparing their top 10 favorite spells of the 1800s or debating the magical worth of Hamlet versus Macbeth. So I love this because they finally have become like a friend group. And Mm. as Simon has pointed out many times before to himself, Penelope and Baz are a lot alike. So this isn't really a surprise (laughs) to him. But he does think it's weird, and I love that he thinks about it. So I think that Penny has, is trying to reinforce the expectations that they all have that Baz is evil and he's trying to undermine them and blah, blah, blah. But she's also kind of giving into this instinct to be friends with somebody that she really clicks with. And that's the intertextuality I really saw there, was that she had this expectation and she keeps reminding Simon, which is a way of reminding herself because Simon quotes her in his brain. And Simon is thinking about how Penny needs to also like be reminded that actually, you know, like Baz could be a problem for them later. But she doesn't really want to stop being friends with him because he's giving her something that she really needs. Mm. How I'm relating it to other texts is I've been spending a lot of time with Charlotte Bronte this week. And like there's this whole sequence of Jane Eyre where she basically tries to talk herself out of being in love with Rochester. So like she hears he's gone off to like a party at another house with like a really hot girl in the neighborhood. So she's like, right, okay, describe this woman to me. And then she like paints this beautiful picture of this Blanche Ingram. And then she like draws a rough, ugly sketch of herself. And she's like, see, he'll never look at you. Calm yourself down, Jane. And then he comes back and she's like, I hate that I like him. I hate that I like him, but she really still likes him. And I love that because she's mad about it. She's mad she likes him. But they suit each other. And, like, so while Jane is reminding herself that she's not supposed to like Rochester, she still likes him. And Penny is doing the same thing where she's like, now remember, Baz is a pitch and we have to keep this little (laughs) box around him. But she keeps crossing out of that box to hang out with him because he's really fun to hang out with and they get along really well. So I just love it. And I love that she's following her instincts toward a connection, which is really brave and really great. And I really admire her for that. But also, I think it's really funny that sometimes the expectations we have of people are not what they turn out to be. So it's kind of a good reminder. Yeah. Keep an open mind. Yeah. People can surprise you. Yeah. And sometimes you can't help who you like, too, which is just. Yeah. (laughs) No matter how bad they seem to be on paper, 
in reality, they might be great and vice versa. Mm, very true. So how about you? Did you have an in-depth marginalia? Yeah, so mine's on page 280 and it's when Baz is seething about the conversation he's had with Simon <laughs> about Agatha. And the line I've chosen is, my road to hell isn't paid with good intentions or bad. It's just my road. Mm. So he just thinks Simon thinks the worst of him, right? And he thinks it doesn't really matter whether yeah. his intentions are bad or good or whatever he does because being a vampire is already the worst thing that he can be and he can't Aww. control that. So it doesn't matter what he does because he's inherently evil, right? Mm-hmm. So his instinct is to believe that vampires are evil and therefore he's already doomed, which is a foundational part of his identity and his sense of self, like this idea that he is irredeemable and that he wouldn't be worth saving, that Simon won't save him, that his mother wouldn't have saved him, like all these things that he tells himself. There's a line in Hamlet that says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. To me, it is a prison. So for Hamlet, he's kind of like trapped in his own thoughts. And in this moment, he's sort of wishing for a blissful ignorance where he would never have to think about anything again. Like this is a scene where he's talking to Rosencrantz and Gilderstein and he's trying to like escape from that thinking but he's not because he's in this prison of his own creation but if you just take the first part of that that section there's nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so it kind of becomes a cognitive behavioral therapy thing right because you can apply judgment to a situation and yes while there are bad things that are bad that may happen you can take a step back and let it pass without dragging you along with it so you know you are not your feelings you can experience them and watch them drift past and i think like baz Mm. thinks he's a fixed point that what he is he's immutable he is a vampire he's a monster he's inherently evil for what he is regardless of his own actions and that is just not true so i think going forward like it's really important to remember that we are not our feelings we are defined by what we do and how we act and we can always change for the better like if we just try yeah so yeah it's really hard not to act on feelings we're working on that a lot in our house at the moment feel your feelings but we don't act on them you can be annoyed but you can't be rude like it's a really hard skill to learn i saw a tweet today that someone said that their kids primary school they were teaching them that feelings are fish in a fish pond and the Mm. key is to be the pond not the fish Ooh, i love that cool hey it's like a cool concept it's beautiful thanks for sharing that I just thought it was really clever. I'm like, yeah, that actually makes sense. Like, you know, and that's a big thing about meditation as well. When you learn to meditate is like, you know, see the feeling and just watch it go by. Name the feeling. You don't have to act on it, but like you need to know what it is. So much of CBT is like identifying your feelings and like living in the discomfort of them. Yeah. And reframing how you talk about them. Like, I'm not a sad person. I am a person who is sad, right? Like, yeah, it's not who you are. It's what you're feeling. Like, your feeling is not who you are. And I feel like Baz thinking that he is a vampire and this is this terrible thing. Like, you know, you just have this urge. It doesn't mean you're not even behaving in an evil way. Like, you've never done yeah. anything evil in your entire life. And yet. It's such an allegory for the way that we demonize people from certain races religions backgrounds Mm. countries i think this is the way baz feels right he's like oh i am part of this group of people who's historically done these horrible things therefore i am evil but it's just really not that cut and dried it's also just a fundamental misunderstanding of how vampires exist in the world right like penny talks about oh you know we want humans alive and vampires want them dead i'm like well they don't actually want people dead no because like they, they also need them eat. alive yeah they wouldn't be able to eat they want to be able to farm them maybe grim but true well i mean what, what's it 
the idea that we have domesticated animals, but actually plants domesticated us. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, if vampire fiction and a rich history of vampire fiction has taught us anything, it's like there are loads of humans who would happily just hang around vampires and be like a very willing source of blood for them. So yeah, I watched several seasons of True Blood before I got tired of it. Could never get over the accents in that show. Is it because Anna Paquin's a Kiwi and she should sound like a Kiwi because she does not? She sounds Southern? It was predominantly what's his face, the lead guy, not the scars guard, the other one. Yeah, the way he talked, I would just always be like, oh man, I can't with this. And the way he would say, Suki, Suki, like it just cracked me up. Do you have a character you want to spotlight this week? Yes, I would like to spotlight Baz because Yay. I think it's rough to feel isolated in what you are, right? Yeah. Like, so feeling so bad about who you are to the fact that you can't talk about it and just having no outlet and always feeling like you have to put up a front and like having yeah. to protect yourself. He is always on the defensive and that is exhausting. So I just want to say, I see you, Baz. I love you. How about you? I would like to spotlight Eb. Eb is no. a truly good person. Eb is not ambitious, but she is powerful. And as somebody who's not particularly ambitious, I really feel this this call to like recognize that in myself wanting the little things to be done nicely wanting to enjoy a biscuit wanting to sit with goats well you know in my case not goats but my kids wanting to be <laughs> present in those moments as best as I can like I might have a lot of potential to do other things but I I don't want to do them because I don't know what I would be if I did them and I don't think all of it would be good so I love that someone gave Eb the opportunity to just sit and be still and she's really done well and look her love is so big her love for her brother is so big she mourns him she thinks about him she wants to talk about him and she looks after this orphan kid who is just as hurt and alone as she is and just offers so much to him without it ever being a thing she doesn't need anything from him she doesn't need him to be someone he's not i just she's just beautiful and i love eb so much it actually makes my heart hurt so hard in this section when i realize how much she loved her brother and loves her brother mm. and how much she's willing to put out there for for simon you know she's she says, if you need me, just send up a flare. I'll feel it. She's just really beautiful and so generous. And I think we should all be a little more like Eb. I think that's lovely. I do think you're right. We should all be more like Eb. Like, just give unconditionally. Yeah. And be unashamedly yourself, you know? Like, be who you are and don't feel like you have to do something because someone else expects it of you. So lovely. Yeah, I think she's got a real good self-awareness that she has a lot of power, but no direction and no nowhere to put it that's safe or good. The fact that Baz's mom recognized it and was able to find somewhere for her to be that suited her and kept her safe and kept the world safe. That's a beautiful thing to do. That's such a kindness as well. But I love that Eb knows that. She's the best. Mm. So next week we'll be reading chapters 54 to 62 through the theme of tradition. Oh, it's going to be so exciting because we're at Baz's house now and we get to see all of his traditional heritage listed house. His haunted heritage listed house. <laughs> I love that it's haunted and the cab driver won't even take Simon to, to the house. He had to walk down the road. <laughs> That is so funny to me. That's so good. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for potting with me today. I really love our time together and I love that we get to spend so much time in this book too. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's just so lovely to explore these these characters because you know I love them and it's just to go a bit deeper is always, always so rewarding. So it's thank you for doing this with me. the actual best. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginalia Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.